For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is Unveiling Jesus Christ. Hello, and welcome to another podcast on Unveiling Jesus Christ. I'm John Cassinet, and I will be your host as always. Uh, today we're kind of starting a new chapter in our series of uh, podcasts that I've been doing on the book of Revelation. Today we'll be talking about specific verses in the book of Revelation, beginning today with three verses found in Revelation 1, 1 through 3. But before I begin the formal podcast, I, I want to give a little bit of an introduction uh, to something my uh, daughter-in-law said uh, over the Christmas holidays uh, when she said, uh, you know, you're not really doing podcasts, you're doing pawcasts. <laughs> now, that takes us a little bit of an explanation. Um, your family may be a little bit like ours, but uh, we have all kinds of uh, names that are nicknames in our family. And so I have to give a little explanation when we say that this is a paw cast as opposed to a pod cast. Um, I have to give a little bit of an explanation of what that means. And <laughs> believe it or not, it goes to the back to the movie Transformers uh, that came out in the year 2007. And you'll remember in the movie, if you've seen it, that uh, Sam Wickwicky is going to buy his first car and he goes to the uh, car lot that is owned by Bobby Bolivia. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, when uh, Bobby learns that Sam is there to buy his first car, he says, well, that practically makes us family. Uncle Bobby B, baby, Uncle Bobby B. <laughs> and so Bobby is trying to persuade Sam that he's going to make him a good deal on a car, and he wouldn't lie about cars in front of his mammy. Well, his mammy was sitting over on the lawn, and he says, Hey, mammy! And uh, she makes an obscene gesture back to him, and he says, Oh, if I had a rock, I'd put your head. <laughs> well, ever since that movie came out, my son Josh, who seems to get a lot of airtime on my podcast, he started calling my wife Jan Mammy, and he'd use that line, and uh, he said, Oh, mammy, if I had a rock, I'd put your head. <laughs> Now, the good news is he always said it with a lot of affection, but uh, ever since the year 2007, when that movie came out, Jan has been known as Mammy. And uh, when we started having grandchildren, she uh, went on to become Grammy. And so now today she's Grammy, Mammy for the kids and Grammy for the grandkids. Um, well, and so you have to ask yourself the question, well, what does that have to do with Pa? Well, for some reason, I've always just kind of been paw, and uh, so I was feeling a little bit left out, you know, when uh, uh, Grammy uh, got ascended on the throne of the hierarchy to become Grammy from Mammy. I, I still remain paw, but then it occurred to me that uh, when my uh, daughter-in-law, Kristen, said that uh, I'm doing paw cast because my name is paw, that what must have happened when we started having grandchildren is that I had a G, a silent G added to my name. 
It's like the Gnostics, right? It's spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S, and the G on the front of Gnostics is silent. Now, the, the Gnostics, we're going to talk about them later on when we start talking about the seven churches, but uh, these are an apostate group within the early Christian church that had a uh, heavy Greek influence and brought about a lot of really bad things in the uh, the early church, in the apostasy in the early church. So what we have going on now is essentially pa-cast, but with a silent G on the front. <laughs> So at any rate, as we begin this new series of uh, podcast with the silent G, we're going to be talking about specific sections and portions of the book of Revelation. Now, the, the title of these podcasts will include the section number of the book where you can find this specific section. So if you have a copy of my book and you don't need one, you don't need my book to... Uh, to be able to follow along and get the benefit of these podcasts. But if you happen to have my book, then the title of the podcast relates specifically to a specific section in the book. And uh, there are 378 sections in my two-volume books, and we're going to cover them all. Um, and it's going to take me... <laughs> you, you, you start doing the math... 378 sections, um, and I'm going to cover them all. Uh, if we were to do one podcast a week, it would take approximately seven years to accomplish this feat. Um, so I'm going to try and do two podcasts per week in which we're going to be d discussing verse by verse the information in the book of Revelation, and we're going to get it done in three and a half years. So the good news is you're going to get a detailed commentary of every single verse in the book of Revelation, and you'll be able to see in the titles of the podcasts uh, the section number and also the verses. So if you go into YouTube, you go on my website, and you're looking for a specific verse that you want to see what was said about those particular verses, you'll be able to find it right in the title. And then we'll give, I'll give a description of where specifically in the uh, podcast you can find the uh, the actual verse itself and you'll find that in the description on YouTube. So I just wanted to kind of give you that uh, <clears throat> introduction and, and understand also that uh, I've done 14 podcasts in 2023 but now I'm doing podcasts in, starting in 2024 but a lot of those earlier podcasts they cover uh, multiple chapters. Some of them are kind of foundational information that is very helpful. And so as we go through the specific verses, uh, I will sometimes refer you back to the larger contextual information in those prior podcasts. Um, I'll give you a date and a number that you'll find in the title so you can easily reference back. And uh, so, for example, if we're talking about dates, uh, when the book of Revelation was written, uh, I'll refer you to the specific uh, podcast that goes back and talks about that specifically. So at any rate, this is kind of my fulfillment of a promise that I made <laughs> repeatedly as I was doing these various podcasts. That, and we were looking at everything from kind of a 30,000 foot elevation and you couldn't really dig into the details just because there was so much content to cover as part of the Come Follow Me program. So now we've gotten to the point where... Uh, 
We're, we're digging into the details, and uh, I hope that you'll find them to be of great benefit to you. Now, with that introduction, let me go ahead and let's begin with our discussion of Re Revelation 1, verse 1, which states as follows, quote, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. What you have in this verse is essentially a description of the title that reflects the entire subject matter of the whole book in this first verse. It is essentially a revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, in the Greek, it could be a revelation about Jesus Christ, or it could also be a revelation from Jesus Christ. So either one of those would apply when we're talking about these first words in the book of Revelation about a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the word revelation comes, of course, from the Greek word apocalypsis or apocalypse as we have anglicized it. An apocalypse signifies literally a revelation, a discovery of something that was concealed or hidden. And the word apocalypse in Greek actually comes from two separate Greek words. First you have apo, which is a preposition which means to be separated or removed away from. And then the second part of the word is a verb, which means to cover, hide, or conceal. And you may recall in past podcasts, I talked a little bit about the, uh, the boat of Jacques Cousteau that had the name of Calypso. Um, and they're related, and so the idea is Jacques Cousteau on his boat Calypso dives under the water and unveils and uncovers and reveals lots of really cool stuff in the ocean, and uh, so the name for his boat being Calypso is very, very appropriate, and so the idea between when you put Apo and Calypto together, you get Apocalypsis, which is a noun that literally means to remove or take away a covering or veil. Now we want to contrast that with the word apocrypha. So don't get apocalypse and apocrypha confused. So an apocrypha is a book that has not been canonized in the Bible. And depending on whichever religion that you might belong to, there are about 22 books of scripture that have not been canonized with the Bible. And uh, the, the word of Apocrypha first applied to writings that were to be read privately rather than in public or in church services. And so that particular word is formed by a combination of two words as well. Again, we, we have first the first part, which is the preposition apo, which as I mentioned, means to be separated or removed or away from. But instead of calypto, meaning something that is covered, hid, or, un, or concealed, you have the second part of the word that is cryptine, which means to hide. So the idea is it connotes the idea of something that is closed or hidden. So essentially, it's almost the opposite of apocalypse. Uh, so with apocrypha, what you get is you're separating the closed and hidden portion so that it remains hidden and closed. And so that essentially is different and almost opposite of uh, the apocalypse, which is to open, to reveal, and to uncover. And so in all of this, what we have, the message is, is that Christ 
is the hidden object that is revealed or unveiled in the book of Revelation. And, and that's why my podcast is called uh, Unveiling Jesus Christ, uh, because the, the, we focus on the Savior as revealed to us through the book of Revelation. And on my YouTube channel also, we have the channel is Unveiling Jesus Christ. And that, that's essentially the reason for that. So as we talk about the uh, this first verse, which is the revelation of uh, Jesus Christ, keep in mind that we also have the uh, the Greek verb uh, for revelation, which is apocalypto, uh, and that means to also reveal, to manifest, to uncover, to view. And uh, as I mentioned, there are kind of two interpretations of this, one in the sense that it is a revelation that the Lord gives or a revelation that unveils him. And so both views are valid and, and they're not mutually exclusively and essentially collectively we have the revealing or manifestation and appearing of uh, Jesus Christ. Now, uh, Dr. Richard Draper said this about this concept. He said, quote, in the Near Eastern world, an apocalypse was that subset of prophecy that focused on a manifestation of deity. In the New Testament, the word apocalypse carries the heavy connotation to appear, pointing to the second coming when God and Christ will fully reveal themselves to all people. So that just kind of gives you an overview of this concept of the apocalypse. Now, something that we need to mention is the treatment of the book of Revelation in the Joseph Smith translation, which changes a number of verses in the King James Version of the Bible. In fact, it modifies 3,410 verses in the King James Version, and there are a number of these changes that appear in the book of Revelation as one of those books that receives the most uh, correction. So the, the Joseph Smith translation, keep in mind, is not a scholarly translation of the King James Version of the Bible. Rather, it was a revelatory translation of a work that began by the prophet Joseph Smith in 1830. So he, by revelation, essentially made certain modifications to uh, the book of Revelation and other books. And what you'll find on, on a number of times is his changes in the uh, Joseph Smith translation of the JST, as we refer to it, often reflects what the original Greek meaning was, that if you go back and look at the old Greek manuscripts and the original Greek words, you'll find that he's fairly consistent uh, in making changes that conform to the intent expressed in the original Greek manuscript. So now what I want to do is do a little comparison between the King James Version of Revelation 1.1 and the Joseph Smith Translation Version of Revelation 1.1. And I do this by a side-by-side -side comparison. And on the left side, you'll see where it says, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. And in the Joseph Smith Translation on the right, it says, the revelation of John, a servant of God, which was given unto him of Jesus Christ. And so you can see it makes a rather significant change 
right off the bat going into the book of Revelation. And again, this change that Joseph Smith made here in this particular verse is consistent with some of the earliest Greek manuscripts, including a couple that I just want to mention because they're, they're just kind of noteworthy. I find them interesting and maybe you will too. But the, the first, uh, this would be consistent with the Chester Beatty papyri from the third century AD. Now, this particular papyri consists of about 11 manuscripts. And so it's not the complete Bible. It's not even the complete New Testament, but it's one of the earliest versions that we have of part of the book of Revelation. It can be found in the library in Dublin, Ireland. The, the, what you have next is the, the, the complete New Testament is the the what's called the Codex Sinaiticus, and it's from the fourth century. It can be found in the British Library. Then you have the Codex Alexandrinus from the fifth century, and all of these follow this concept that what we have here is a, the revelation that is given to John as a servant of God, which was given to him of Jesus Christ. So we really literally have a revelation uh, not just about Jesus Christ, but a revelation given of him or unto him of Jesus Christ by Jesus Christ. And so this suggests that this title of the revelation of Jesus Christ was a title that was generally known even in the very early church. And uh, so as we go on and talk a little bit more about the content of this verse, we also have to recognize that we have in the King James Version of this where it says the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him, meaning the him in this verse is Jesus Christ who then is shown to his servant. So what you have is God the Father is the author of the revelation through Jesus Christ. And this is consistent with various verses in the New Testament where Jesus described what his role and what his purpose was as a mediator and as an intercessor. For example, in John 7:16, he makes the statement, my doctrine is not my own, but his that sent me. Similarly, in John 8:28, he says, as my father hath taught me, I speak these things. And so you have in this context, you have John witnesses those things revealed by God through Jesus Christ concerning Jesus Christ. Now, J Charles W. Penrose, a member of the First Presidency in the early days of the church in the early 1900s, had this to say. He said, quote, God our Father is the author of all things here upon this earth. He is the developer or revelator of truth to us. He is the author of our existence and of our faith. It all comes from him, but it comes through Jesus Christ. He stands between us and the Father, and although all things are of the Father, they come by and through Jesus Christ as the mediator. So I think that that's a very good description of what John is essentially saying here in this first verse of the book of Revelation. Now in this verse, we also have the statement that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants. So we need to talk a little bit about this concept of servants because it's going to come up repeatedly as we go through the book of Revelation. So servants are anyone who are faithful members of the church. And it's not limited then to just church leaders, people like apostles. They certainly are servants, but John is using the word servant 
in a broader sense to define them as anyone who is distinguished as obedient and faithful to God or Jesus Christ. And so servants is plural because it's not limited to God's servant John. In other words, in Revelation 1.1, it's not that God gave unto him to show unto his servant John, it's to show unto his servants, to all faithful members of the church. And so John is specifically admonished to send the revelation to uh, the seven churches, which represent uh, the universal church, including the Latter-day Church. And so we find in, for example, in Revelation 7, 3 through 4, there's this discussion about sealing of servants of God in their foreheads. That refers to the 144,000 servants. In Revelation 14, 1, we see them again with, uh, standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion, who are now sealed in their forehead. And this imagery signifies that these servants belong to God. And so in a very real sense, um, those who are servants are like slaves or bond servants. They're owned by the Father and the Son, and we belong to them. And so uh, that's not a, a derogatory thing. It, it, in a, and I know in today's world that sounds like it's kind of an, has a negative connotation associated with it. But when we think of our relationship to um, God the Father and to his Son Jesus Christ, uh, we serve them benevolently, and they, as our owners, uh, to whom we are bond servants, is of the most benevolent kind. And uh, so it's a source of great blessing to us to have that kind of an owner. All right. You also find the reference to uh, servants in uh, Revelation 22 3, where it talks about the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb in the celestial kingdom, and our uh, us as servants being not only people who get to sit on that throne, but also continue our service in that context. All right. So <clears throat> as we continue looking at the phraseology in this verse, the next thing that we come to is this concept is the revelation is going to be shown to the servants. And it specifically talks about things which must shortly come to pass. So we need to have a little bit of a discussion on what that phrase means in the context of this first verse of Revelation. Now we have to keep in mind that the visions given to John on Patmos Island occurred in 96 AD. So if you go back to podcast number two or CFM number two from October 8th of 2023, I did a podcast specifically that talks about the date and canonization of the book of Revelation. And you can get more details and information about my conclusions that the book uh, was written and the visions came to John while on Patmos Island in 96 AD. But that's the context that we need to recognize when John uses the statement about things which must shortly come to pass. Uh, it's with the idea that the book was originally written and the visions originally came in 96 AD. Now, what does it mean? Well, it depends a little bit on who you're talking to because there are, uh, there are different perspectives about this. And let me share just a couple of with you. Uh, the first from uh, a theologian by the name of Albert Barnes. He uh, uh, was born in 1798 and died in 1870. He said, that, and coincidentally, he has a 14-volume treatise on the uh, entire Bible. Um, and so uh, he's a guy that's really done his homework. But he said this with regard to this concept of things which must shortly come to pass. He said, with quickness, 
swiftness, speed, that is speedily, quickly, shortly, soon to occur, or it was not a remote or distant event. So that was his concept of what it means for something in the context of Revelation to come shortly to pass. It means it's going to happen really fast, all right? So on the, by contrast, if you look at what John Walvoord has to say, uh, he, he was a theologian that uh, lived from 1910 to 2002. His concept of shortly come to pass is that it means that the action will be sudden when it comes, not necessarily that it will occur immediately. And so he says, quote, once the end time events begin, they will occur in rapid succession. A third viewpoint on what the uh, shortly come to pass means can be found uh, in the uh, book written by Robert Jameson. He's one of several co-authors of a, a fairly well-recognized book called Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. He lived from 1802 to 1880, and he said this about the concept of things which must shortly come to pass. He said, quote, Revelation comprises in a perfect compendium things close at hand, far off, and in between. <laughs> so he's got all the bases covered. Yeah, it's close, it's far, and well, as long as we're talking about it, we just well include everything in between. And, you know, the reality of it is they're all three correct because the word does have reference to things that are going to happen quickly in John's time. It has to do with things that are going to happen far off. A, a great number of the... Uh, teachings and doctrines in the book of Revelation deal with things that are going to be related to the second coming and that for the back in 96 AD that's still a long way off and then you got everything in between and so technically speaking they're all correct and I agree with all of them <laughs> so at any rate the other thing that uh, is somewhat interesting and, and this kind of comes into the uh, question of when the book of Revelation was written because uh, Dr. Adam Clark, who's a well-recognized the recognized theologian who lived from 1762 until 1832, he and others interpreted the concept of things which must shortly come to pass as the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so for that interpretation to exist, it assumes that the book of Revelation was written before the year 70 AD, but I believe that assumption is wrong because it was written in 96 AD, which you can learn more about if you go back to uh, uh, CFM podcast number two. But uh, essentially, because some people misinterpret the, the date on which the book of Revelation was written, it dictates an improper or incorrect interpretation of the book because for those things that are supposed to shortly come to pass, it puts it in an entirely different context. And so that's just kind of something to keep in mind and why it is fairly important that we get the correct date on when the book of Revelation was written because it tends to dictate a little bit some of the interpretations uh, that you find in uh, the content that is included in the book of Revelation. So. Albert Barnes, Dr. Clark, and others, they all tend to, in one way or another, adopt the view that I have that this idea of what must shortly come to pass includes a series of events pertaining to Jesus Christ that commence shortly and then continue for long periods of time, including remote events 
all the way after the millennium and clear to the end of the earth because that's where we're going to find ourselves in Revelation chapter 22 is the end of the earth uh, and uh, also you have to keep in mind that it begins way back in the premortal existence. And so back in uh, when we were talking about the uh, flashback chapters from Revelation 12 through 14 in an earlier podcast, we know that John jumps us all the way back to the uh, earliest time in the premortal existence in the Grand Council in heaven. And so essentially this idea of things which must shortly come to pass uh, is in this much larger context. Now, some people also explain the things which must shortly come to pass based on this concept found in 2 Peter 3, 8, where 1,000 years on earth are is the equivalent to one day with the Lord. And so if you kind of espouse that view, then essentially what you have between the date of the book of Revelation in 96 AD and the second coming is only two days. Hey, what's two days? <laughs> That's very short. Uh, and from the Lord's perspective, all of these things truly are, are shortly. Um, but again, I don't think we have to kind of stretch ourselves to that type of an interpretation because when John was writing in 96 AD, uh, the things which must shortly come to pass include the great apostasy or what's called the falling away in Second Thessalonians uh, by the Apostle Paul. And uh, by the time 96 AD rolls around, the uh, early Christian church was in the throes of apostasy in a very, very big way. And in fact, Joseph Fielding Smith is of the view that uh, there were only seven churches that still remained that were worthy to receive the messages of John the Revelator in the book of Revelation as of 96 AD. And, and they didn't long survive after the turn of the uh, first century. And uh, so you've got all of these great tribulations, persecutions, and, and much of this is described in the letters to the seven churches that we'll be talking about in some detail. Now, the other thing that I wanted to point out about this concept of things which must shortly come to pass is focusing on the word must for just a moment. And the, the word is emphatic, meaning <clears throat> it's things that of necessity must happen. These are divinely appointed events. And so you, you look closely at this word must in terms of things that must shortly come to pass. And you, you realize that they aren't matters of happenstance. They aren't just matters of uh, haphazardly or coincidental kinds of things. These things are decreed by divine appointment that they must happen and they must shortly come to pass. So we find this uh, type of emphatic emphasis in Revelation 4.1, where John is told to come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. So again, the, the use of the word must is it has to happen. And uh, you find the same thing at the conclusion of the book of Revelation when John is kind of reflecting back on all of the prophecies and visions that have been described. And uh, it says that he, he sees how the sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show unto his servants, quote, the things which must shortly be done, close quote. And again, there's that uh, emphatic word. And uh, let me just quote uh, a something from uh, the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. And so this is the prophet who said this, quote, 
John saw that only which was lying in futurity and which was shortly to come to pass. Now I make this declaration that those things which John saw in heaven had no allusion to anything that had been on the earth previous to that time because they were the representation of things which must shortly come to pass and not of that which already transpired." Close quote. And so there are, of course, certain portions of the book of Revelation where John does his flashback. But again, Joseph Smith is emphasizing this point that the book of Revelation is not a book of history. It is a book about things which must shortly come to pass, uh, including from those things which begin shortly after the writing of the book of Revelation and then continue to the time even unto the end of the earth. All right, so the, another phrase that we need to address in uh, Revelation 1.1 is after the revelation is given, uh, it's recorded that he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So I want to talk about this concept of what it means to have the book of Revelation signified by an angel. And this indicates the, uh, the idea is that uh, it's important. <laughs> you, things that are important, you signify it. Uh, and how is it signified? Um, well, <laughs> I'm reminded of uh, when I was a bishop many years ago and we had uh, young children. I think I, we had, uh, yeah, I think my youngest was born at the time I was a bishop. And so we had seven children, uh, ages from teenager on down to uh, an infant. And so I'm sitting up on the stand every Sunday, of course, and Jan, with all of these urchins, had to sit down in the congregation. And originally, she was sitting kind of in the back because the, the kids would sometimes get a little rowdy. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, so eventually, we decided, you need to move up to the front because uh, when the kids would start getting uh, rowdy, uh, then uh, Mammy, as we called her, <laughs> would, uh, would say, you look at your father. <laughs> and so when the kids, sometimes they didn't want to look at me, but essentially if they were being rowdy, they would have to look at me and I would give them the evil eye from the stand. And that was my method of signifying to that rowdy child that you better behave yourself or you're going to be in big, big trouble. And so the, the idea of what is signified depends, I suppose, a little bit on the context. And in the context of me sitting as a bishop on the stand, it was the evil eye. <laughs> but in, uh, in the context of the book of Revelation, this concept of what is signified, it comes from the Greek word semiano, uh, which means to foretell, but it's done by way of giving a sign, a mark, or an identifying token. So a sign is any indication perceived by the senses or reason. And this is the word that is used in Revelation 12.1, where it describes the sign of the woman in heaven and the sign of the dragon. It's the same word used in Revelation 15.1, where we have the sign of the Son of Man. It's used in Revelation 19.20, where the word is translated as a miracle, but it also actually refers to a sign. This, this is the same Greek word, that appears in the Gospel of John where he describes the miracles of Jesus Christ. So what we take from this is the miracles are not just something that happens as a show or display of power. There are deeper spiritual messages 
behind the miracles that Jesus Christ performed. And in the context of the book of Revelation, these signs are ultimately intended and are given to show truths in the book of Revelation. And by the same token, you have this concept of a mark. That's something that is pressed on or something that is an inherent characteristic of something. And finally, we have the concept or associated uh, uh, word of a token, which is some type of physical proof or an action that reflects or shows something that is intangible. And so the English word uh, that we use for this concept of things that signify comes from the Latin term uh, sigmon, which it expresses essentially the same idea. In essence, it is a sign, it is a mark, it is a token that represents or indicates or validates truth. And so you kind of have to uh, think about your temple experience. And we, we use a lot of signals, signs, tokens, marks, and things of this nature, which express or signify uh, the authenticity of the truth spoken in the temple about the covenants that we're entering into uh, as we uh, take out our endowments and as we uh, participate in the uh, sealing ordinance that uh, assures us of uh, exaltation and eternal life if we're true and faithful to our covenants. So here, what we find ourselves with here in the book of Revelation is a whole bunch of signs and symbols that convey this spiritual truth. And we can be a little bit frustrated because we don't understand them. Uh, but you have, what you have to understand is as you go through the process of becoming familiar with these signs and tokens, marks, and whatever it might be, it's intended to be for you a revelatory experience. It's not just some academic experience that you're supposed to have in learning to understand what all of these uh, signs and tokens are. And it's like, you know, you've been to the temple, say, many times, and you, you've seen the same thing a hundred times. And then all of a sudden, one day, this the light goes on, right? You have this different kind of revelatory experience that happens. Uh, some of you may not have been to the temple, but maybe you've had the same experience reading the same scriptures a hundred times, and you've read it, and you've read it, and you, I'm, I know this. Uh, and then one day, because of the circumstances in your life or the conditions which then exist, suddenly it means something, and the light comes on to you. And that's what your hope, your experience hopefully can be like with the book of Revelation as we get the uh, signification that comes by way of a revelatory experience. And in this case, the signification is given by an angel. So let's spend just a moment of time talking about the uh, concept of angels and bearing in mind, of course, these are not some special creation of God separate from mankind. And oh, by the way, they don't have wings. So <laughs> If you just got done with uh, Christmas and uh, you had your angel up on, it's got wings, you know, false doctrine right on your Christmas tree. <laughs> but at any rate, um, essentially the angels are holy men who held the priesthood during, uh, during their earth life. And they continue to act in uh, special callings to fulfill the will of God. And so Joseph Smith gave this explanation in the quote, explain the difference between an angel and a ministering spirit. The one, a resurrected or translated body with its spirit ministering to embodied spirits. The other, a disembodied spirit visiting and ministering to disembodied spirits. 
After Christ's resurrection, he appeared as an angel to his disciples. The angel that appeared to John on the Isle of Patmos was a translated or resurrected body. Close quote. Now, in Revelation 22, 9, which is part of the epilogue of the book of Revelation, we have this information concerning the angel, could be the angel that signified the revelation to John. And it says this, quote, Then saith, that meaning, then saith the angel unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book worship God, close quote. Now the context for that particular verse is John sees this glorified angel. He's about to fall down and worship him. And this is basically an admonition by that angel. To, hey, hey, what are you doing? Don't worship me. I'm your fellow servant. <laughs> and so he tells him not to worship him and uh, suggests that he worship God instead, which John, of course, does. All right. So let's talk specifically about some of the angels that we encounter in the book of Revelation because the, the word angels can mean different things depending upon the context. So sometimes John sees and hears Christ as the angelic revelator. In other words, Christ is the angel. Not that we're giving him a lesser status, but it's, angels is, tends to be somewhat of a generic term. And so Christ is sometimes the angel in the book of Revelation. And so this, for example, can be seen in Revelation 1.10 and also in verse 13 in that same chapter where it says, quote, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Close quote. So again, that declaration is being made by the Savior himself, this Alpha and Omega. That's always a name or title associated with the Savior. And it's highly appropriate that Christ be participating in this revelation because, of course, he's the chief executive for the Father. He's the Word of God. And we, we know that from John, the Gospel of John, in the first chapter, first verse, and in the 14th verse also, where he explains that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And so this is uh, consistent with the, the Savior coming to John and being an angelic minister as part of the revelatory process. And it's kind of interesting to note also that the, the revelation, as I mentioned, was the revelation of God through Jesus Christ. And the Father has never appeared to fallen man except to bear record of the Son. And so the example of this is at Christ's baptism, when the voice of the Father was heard announcing, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then in our dispensation during the first vision, when the Father appeared with the Savior and basically said, this is my beloved Son, hear him. And so that expresses this idea that the Savior appears and comes to people and reveals certain things, which he did in the book of Revelation. However, most of the revelation is given to John by one or more other angels who have descended or come down from the throne of God to do so. So we find this in the Joseph Smith translation of Revelation 1.4. It says, quote, 
Now this is the testimony of John to the seven servants who are over the seven churches in Asia. Grace unto you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's a reference to Christ, of course. And then it continues, who, sh who hath sent forth his angel from before his throne to testify unto those who are of the seven servants over the seven churches. So again, this is a clear declaration where John is, where Jesus is sending forth his angel. And we know that because we have a reference both to Christ in the same verse that then talks about him sending forth his angel, which clearly distinguishes one from the other. And just by way of a, kind of an interesting thought here, this concept of angels being sent from the throne of God, Warren Wearsby, who uh, was a theologian who lived from 1929 to 2019, said, the book of Revelation is the book of the throne. <laughs> he said, the throne occurs 46 times throughout the book of Revelation, and this is just one of those 46 occasions. Now, as we talk about the concept of angels coming and some of them speak as though they were the Savior, and this is where some of the confusion can sometimes come in, is because angels are speaking with divine investiture of authority. So they basically take upon themselves the Lord's name and his words, and they act in the Lord's place as his agent. As his agent. And so angels have a right to speak and act as Christ in fulfilling their duties. And, you know, if we go back to the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants, and the, the Savior says, whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. And so some of these angels come down acting as though they were the, uh, the Savior himself. And so this concept of divine investiture of authority occurs really in two ways. One is you have the Savior himself who speaks as though he was the Father. That's an example or illustration of someone speaking with divine investiture of authority. And you'll find that illustrated in uh, John 5.43. Then you also have uh, the Holy Ghost who speaks as though he was Christ. An illustration of that can be found in Moses 5 uh, verse 9. And so these, these concepts of divine investiture authority apply in the context of these angels also speaking as though they were the Savior. And, and this can be found in Revelation 19.10. It can be found in Revelation 22.8 and 9. Those are the two occasions when John uh, mistook the angel for Christ himself, fell down to worship him, and was scolded on both occasions for doing so. Now, John Taylor had this to say in the Journal of Discourses. He said, quote, Then again, we read of John on the Isle of Patmos. You know he was in vision, and the Lord revealed unto him many great things, and there was a personage appeared, one of the old prophets, who said, I am one of those old fellows that used to have to wander about in my day in sheepskins and goatskins. The priests, hypocrites, and continuation of that day persecuted me, but now I am exalted and have come to minister unto you, John. Close quote. So John Taylor was a little bit more express in identifying the uh, angelic messenger from the throne of God as apparently a translated or resurrected prophet who lived in the time of the Old Testament. And that would make sense since uh, John was receiving the revelation in 96 AD 
and uh, so we have that information as well. Now, the uh, last thing that I want to say uh, in regard to the signification of the angel unto his servant John is it is being signified to John. And as we come then into Revelation chapter 1, verse 2, we find this, who bear record of the word of God. So what we're talking about as we move to Revelation, we have the end, of, I'm going to quote the end of verse 1 and roll right into verse 2. So at the end of verse 1, it says, signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw, close quote. And so essentially when it says who bear record of the word of God, we're talking about John is the one who bear record or was the faithful witness of Jesus Christ as the word of God. Now, the word of God occurs frequently in the New Testament. It means the word or doctrine respecting God. It essentially teaches us who God is. And it means that Christ, who is the word, speaks or is doing the teaching. And now we have John is a special witness of Jesus Christ in regard to these teachings about who God is. Now, in some of the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, you have this concept of a special witness, but it actually refers to um, some of the leaders of the church as especial witnesses of Jesus Christ. In other words, there's an E on the front of the word special. So one time someone asked Boyd K. Packer, what's the difference between a special witness and an especial witness? And his answer was an E. <laughs> so essentially, what you have between the two of them, a special witness or an especial witness, they're the same thing. It doesn't matter. They're basically synonymous. So in Revelation 1-2, what we have here is John bearing record of the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so, again, we've talked a little bit about what the revelation means in terms of what it means in reference to a testimony of Jesus Christ. Number one, it essentially means that John is restating or repeating the testimony which Jesus Christ bore for the truth. So that's the general meaning of what we're talking about. So it's not usually a testimony that John had concerning Jesus Christ, but is a testimony which Christ bore for the truth and which John now is restating or repeating. So Christ was himself a witness of the truth, and John is his special witness of the testimony which Christ has borne. So I hope that's clear. Um, and it's also meaning that John is also a witness of the testimony revealed to him by Christ on Patmos Island. And what this does, it gives us the assurance that John is repeating precisely the testimony that Jesus Christ gave of himself. Now, I, this brings to my mind the, the verse in Moses 6.63, which says this, quote, And behold, all things have their likeness, and all things are created and made to bear record of me, both things which are temporal and things which are spiritual, things which are in the heavens above and things which are on the earth, and things which are in the earth and things which are under the earth, both above and beneath, all things bear record of me, close quote. And those are, of course, 
the words of the the Savior speaking um, in the book of Moses and this concept that all things bear record of me includes the things which John saw in the book of Revelation that were revealed to him. All of these things going through bar none, all things have their likeness in Jesus Christ and bear record of him. And that's true of the book of Revelation. And that's the necessity uh, of what John's task is, is to bear record of the Savior Jesus Christ, both the things which he learned presumably during the mortal ministry of Jesus Christ, as well as those things that are revealed to him in the course of his visions while on the island of Patmos. Now, one other thing that I want to add when we're talking about this concept of all things that, uh, that John saw, I want to repeat uh, the context of Revelation 1-2 that says, quote, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Now, the common reading in the Greek is, whatsoever he saw, that is, during his vision. And this suggests that John is bearing record of the Savior, uh, of the things that he saw while on the island of Patmos. But what's kind of interesting about this verse is that in a large number of Greek manuscripts, the word and is missing in the Revelation 1-2. That is the second time it appears in the verse it's missing. So <clears throat> I'm going to I'm going to go through it again and we got it up on the screen. It says, quote, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and that's the one that's missing in the Greek manuscripts where it says and of all things that he saw. Now let me read the verse as though there were no second and in the in the verse and it says who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ of all things that he saw. See, you can eliminate the word and, and it doesn't. you don't really feel like it's missing, like something's missing uh, from a grammatical point of view. Uh, but what it does is when you omit this, and most of the best editions of the Greek New Testament do omit them, it's uh, essentially John's testimony to the vision and not what occurred before his visions on the island of Patmos. So if you take the word and out, it's really a testimony of Jesus Christ of all things that he saw while on the island of Patmos. So the bottom line is that all of these things are teaching us in the book of Revelation that John recorded his faithful witness of the things that were revealed to him from God, through Jesus Christ while John was on the island of Patmos. And so he stands as a witness. And, and witnesses are an important thing. And we've talked in, on other occasions about this law of witnesses, but what kind of comes to, to mind is you've got this concept of someone in a legal setting who comes to the witness stand to give court testimony. And, you know, they swear them in and they say, uh, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help, so help you God. And, you know, that's all changed now. They don't say that anymore. 
<laughs> people just can't take the idea uh, of uh, taking an oath in the name of God. And so we've watered it down a little bit. Um, and they say, you just, they don't even swear anymore. Uh, you just say, do you affirm or do you swear, you know, that you'll uh, tell the truth? And yeah, I do. <laughs> so at any rate, but it reminds me of an experience I had when I was a, uh, a judge advocate in the United States Marine Corps. And uh, I was uh, assigned as a, a prosecutor. And so I had this case that I was trying and uh, it was a drug case and uh, the accused was uh, uh, supposedly had uh, been selling some drugs and uh, so we had an incident where um, the, the drug sale occurred and as we're we're literally in trial and the defense counsel tells me that he has an alibi witness right who's going to come in and testify that the accused couldn't be the guy selling the drugs because he, an alibi witness is going to place him in another location at the supposed time when the drug sale was going down. And I'm learning this, I mean, literally as we're in trial. And the judge was not happy when they said that they had an alibi witness. And so the judge said, well, what do you want to do, counsel? And uh, <clears throat> I said, well, I'd just like an opportunity. Let me interview the witness. And so we took a break. And uh, I'm interviewing this, he was probably a Lance Corporal or something like that. And boy, I don't think they ever told him when he showed up as an alibi witness for the trial that I would have the opportunity to uh, interview him. So I took him down in my office and I'm sitting there and, and he's acting like he's practically on drugs himself. He's acting all sleepy like, oh yeah. <laughs> Because <laughs> he just, it was the last place in the universe he wanted to be. But I got some information. I could tell that uh, he was not going to be a credible witness. And so one of the tricks you learn when you're going through law school and other things is there are only certain things you can use to actually impeach a witness. And one of them is the witness's own sworn statement in writing. And so as I'm going through the facts of this, what he's supposedly going to testify about, I'm sitting there writing down a handwritten sworn statement of what the witness is going to say. And I knew he would never testify consistently. I could just, he was all over the map, even in my office. And so I got him to, and then I read it to him. And I put at the end of the statement, I declare that I have read this statement and it's true and correct and, you know, Lance Corp or whatever. And he signed it. And so, you know, an hour or two later, we go back up to uh, the, the trial and I let the judge know I'm ready to roll. And uh, they call him as a witness and he gives this certain testimony. And then I, uh, my turn to cross-examine him and I used his sworn statement to impeach him every time that uh, he uh, <laughs> said something that was inconsistent. And then, of course, I called back the uh, the first sergeant who was over the accused and he contradicted said he could not have been there when he's saying he had this alibi for this other person and he gave all the facts of why the uh, the alibi defense uh, just uh, couldn't work and so then the trial ended and of course this was one of the unusual trials in the Marine Corps because uh, you didn't have many jury trials in the uh, in the trials that we try in the Marine Corps because the uh, the Marines they they're pretty hard on themselves and on those who uh, who don't uh, live up to uh, the uh, the motto of uh, Semper Fidelis and uh, you know so you you get off on the uh, 
on the wrong path, they will hammer you. <laughs> and so in the, the Marine Corps system, in the military, the jury also gets to uh, set the uh, sentence, whereas, you know, in, in other state court settings, civil but criminal cases, uh, you know, a jury will f determine guilt, but a judge determines what the sentence is going to be. But that's not the case in the military. It's the, the jury that does it. And because when a, uh, an accused was found guilty, uh, these Marine Corps juries just hammered them when, uh, when they did the sentencing. So it was very rare that it happened. Um, and I think the defense counsel was kind of counting on the idea that uh, we got this alibi witness and he could get him off and it was more likely to be that a jury would be more believing of the uh, witness and the alibi witness than uh, than a judge would be and so that's kind of the reason they went for that but it all kind of backfired and uh, you know so after the case was over the jury went out and it didn't take him long to convict this guy and uh, as we were going through the uh, the, the closing arguments before the jury was sent out, <clears throat> I remember that the defense counsel was talking about his vision or viewpoint of the uh, case, and then when he had to get to the point of how do we deal with the inconsistency in the testimony of the alibi witness and his first sergeant, who basically contradicted what the alibi witness was saying. And so when he got to, the defense counsel got to that point in his argument, he, he just blurted out all of a sudden, and the first sergeant, is a bald-faced liar. <laughs> I, my eyes, I'm sure they were about the size of plates. They must have grown uh, exponentially because when I heard him say that the first sergeant is a bald-faced liar, you're basically saying you should believe this Lance Corporal and forget about everything that the first sergeant got, had said. And so I remember uh, after he gave his argument, of course, I had the chance to come back and do my rebuttal argument. And so I got up on my closing and I, uh, I talked about the facts a little bit. And then I had to address what the uh, defense counsel had said about the first sergeant being a bald-faced liar. And I just said, you know what, that's a pretty bold statement. I think you know how to deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> and it, they did know how to deal with it. They, the conviction came back very quickly. And one of the things that happened, and the reason I'm telling you this story, by the way, is what happened with the, the judge uh, at the time that he gave his instruction to the members of the jury um, after they had come back and had convicted him, then they had to go back out and deliberate on his punishment. And so the, the judge... Uh, sua sponte, in other words, on his own, without any request on my part, gave an instruction for enhanced punishment for proffering false testimony during the uh, the trial. And so when those jurors came back and uh, uh, decided what the punishment was going to be, they, ju they just hammered that, uh, the convicted uh, defendant. It's, I mean, they hammered him. I don't remember what it was, but it was just shockingly bad <laughs> in terms of the, uh, the punishment that they uh, meted out to him. And so, at any rate, so that's all about witnesses. Sorry, a little bit of a digression here, but at any rate, the, the, the concept of witness, when you think about John, Think about what his punishment would be if he were to stray, if he were like the false alibi witness, and he's just up there saying things that, that aren't true and that can't possibly be true. Um, and that that just can't 
possibly be the case. And so he's a, uh, he's a faithful witness that he has given uh, of his testimony of the things that he has saw. And so he, you just can't imagine, you're not going to be subject yourself if you're a person like John for enhanced punishment for giving false religious testimony. Um, and yet that's, uh, that's essentially what happens in many cases, both in a religious context. It happened with the Savior himself. He was convicted by the uh, testimony of false witnesses, and you had the uh, the, the Roman uh, witnesses falsely accusing Christians, Jews falsely accusing uh, Christians of being disloyal to uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, you have modern witnesses today who fight against all truth, and so this concept of uh, witnesses and the need to be a faithful and true witness uh, kind of emphasizes those points that John had to testify of the facts and the truths known to him exactly as they had been made known to him. There was no embellishment, there's no exaggeration, there's no false truth. Again, it comes down to it's the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And, and that's the witness that, uh, that John uh, is giving. So now, the, the other phrase that I want to just talk a little bit about is this concept that John is giving his testimony of Jesus Christ of all things that he saw. Now this is consistent with a rule of evidence that you have to have eyewitness testimony. You can't have hearsay testimony. And a hearsay statement is essentially where you have the witness who's testifying saying something that another declarant who is saying that's not sitting in that seat saying it for himself. That would be a hearsay statement. Now, if we take a look at this um, in Revelation chapter 22, verses 18, it says this, quote, If any man add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book, close quote. Now I say that because consider this, this John is giving his testimony, his non-hearsay testimony of all the things that he saw. And then later on, as the book of Revelation comes to an end, I mean, we're literally a couple verses away from the end of the book of Revelation. And John is warning people, hey, if you take away from my testimony, you do something to uh, take away, or if you do something to try and add to the testimony that I have given, then God shall take away your part out of the book of life. In other words, you're in big trouble. You're going to get an enhancement an enhanced punishment for being a false witness if you do these things. And so imagine John giving this curse upon people who take away or add to the books of the prophecy if he himself were not a true and faithful witness. <laughs> it would be like cursing himself because he took away from or he added to the prophecy that God gave him by not properly setting it forth as he was required to do. So he can't violate his own rule that you can't take away or add to it. So John was in a very real sense, what we call in the legal vernacular, a scrivener. In other words, he took, he took what he was given, he wrote it down exactly, and he could do that, why? Because we learn 
that he was in the spirit as he's writing these things down. Now, uh, you know, again, I, in my life, former life as an attorney, I was also uh, a legal malpractice attorney. So I would sue other lawyers for messing up their clients' cases or, or doing something wrong that caused injury to their clients. So, you know, I was a favorite among my peers. But at any rate, a lawyer uh, is, is, a, is a defense that sometimes they use the Scrivener defense. All right, so somebody has written a document and it turns out the document is very, very badly written. Now, I never actually tried one of these cases, but I'm familiar with them. And, uh, and the lawyer comes up and his defense to the legal malpractice claim is, well, I didn't actually give any legal advice in connection with the way the document was written. I was just a scrivener. I only wrote down what the client gave me and wasn't giving any legal advice. And so because I didn't give any legal advice, I didn't violate any standard of care. or I didn't fall below the standard of care because I only wrote down what I was given. <laughs> and my response to that is, right. <laughs> yeah, those cases, they don't go well. All right. I mean, yeah, sometimes, but very, very rarely because lawyers, that's what we do. We give advice and, and we have a duty to, if something doesn't look right, to tell the client. The client can ignore it, but you know, if they really want, no, this is my language, this is the way I want it, but you have a duty as a lawyer to at least let them know that you may want to look at something a, a second time. But at any rate, essentially, because John was a scrivener uh, in, a, in a pretty true sense of the word, we can have faith that he has done so properly and that essentially these are Christ's words and ultimately the words of the Father. All right, so now we move on to Revelation chapter uh, 1, verse 3, and it states as follows, quote, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Now, this is the first of seven Beatitudes that appear in the book of Revelation. And you'll, you'll remember that the Beatitudes are a word that we use in connection with the uh, promised blessing spoken by the Savior on the Sermon of the Mount. And so in the Matthew uh, version of the Sermon on the Mount, he records nine statements of blessedness in Matthew 5 verses 3 through 12. Well, John's seven Beatitudes differ from those in the Sermon on the Mount. So in Matthew's formula, essentially what you have is a statement of blessing that come to people followed by the form of the blessing. So for example, in Matthew 5, 3, it states, quote, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Close quote. So you have a declaration of the blessing followed by the statement of the form of the blessing. And in Revelation, it's different. The numbers differ, 9 verses 7, but also the manner or the methodology of the pronouncement of the blessing differs as well. Because in the book of Revelation, essentially what you have is the statement of the blessing for an action that they take but the form of the blessing is not given. So if you go back to <clears throat> Revelation 1.3, blessed is he that readeth. That's an action that they want, must take if they want to receive the blessing. But then the, the nature of the blessing is not given. What is implied, however, in every one of them 
is that the form of the blessing in all cases is going to be exaltation. John is almost always focused on exaltation. And this is consistent with this concept of the oldest known use of the word blessed. It describes a state of blessedness of gods that are free from trials and tribulations of life. And the emphasis is on this concept or the connection between good conduct and a heavenly reward. And so in these seven Beatitudes, we have this universal kind of blessedness because in numerology, seven signifies fullness and completeness. And if you want to get more in depth on the, the symbolism of numbers and how they pertain to the book of Revelation, then go back and listen to my podcast number five from October 29, 2024, that deals with numerology and symbolism, all right? So essentially, looking at this, the word beatitude itself, that is a word that is not found in the English Bible. It comes from the, the Latin phrase beatitudo, which is derived or occurs in the Latin Vulgate, which is the, the Bible that was published uh, and written in 390 to 405 AD. And in the Latin church, uh, the beatitudo was an abstract term that kind of denotes blessedness generally. So if you're, you're receiving a blessing in the form of a beatitude, it's kind of an abstract kind of concept. Um, but there is also a concrete sense in which it occurs where you get this particular declaration of blessedness especially from Jesus Christ. And so the, the Greek word for blessedness means having a spiritual well-being, prosperity, deep joy. And to beatify something is to make it supremely happy or to announce the blessedness of heaven. So that's a little bit about the, the concept of the uh, uh, beatitude or state of blessedness. Now let's focus a little bit in the same verse in Revelation 1-3 on some of the things that people are required to do in order to merit the blessedness that is pronounced in this verse. So, so reading it again, we have, quote, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein. And so the promise of blessedness should be compared to the blessedness promised in the prologue in the book of Revelation. So right now we're still in the prologue, but I meant to say it's repeated in the epilogue found in Revelation 22.7 that says this, quote, Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book, close quote. And so from the very beginning of the book of Revelation in the prologue, you have a state of blessedness that is promised that is consistent with the promise of blessedness at the end of the book of Revelation in the epilogue. And in both of them, the emphasis is on reading, hearing, and keeping, with a focus on the keeping. If you don't read, you don't hear, you never can keep because you've never heard or read, right? So essentially you have the blessedness. And what's kind of interesting about this is you have he that readeth, is in the singular, and then it transforms into, and they that hear the words of this prophecy. So reading singular, hearing plural. And the reason for that is probably because of the ancient context in which the book of Revelation was given. And so when the book of Revelation was 
submitted uh, initially in the seven churches, you have this concept that it's going to be read by one individual in the synagogue or churches of the time, and then you would have a group of people that would be the hearers of it. That's why you have he that readeth, singular, the idea somebody's reading it from a stand or what we would today would call the pulpit. Uh, they are reading it, and the congregation, plural, is hearing it. Now, this was consistent with the concept that under Jewish law, if you were going to read scripture in a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 persons present in order to do so, to kind of make a quorum or a congregation. And if you didn't have the 10 people, then you weren't qualified to uh, open the scriptures and read them. And so that differs a little bit obviously from today nope and, and it was of necessity to a certain extent i don't know why they chose 10 10 of course is a symbolic number that mean, means the whole of a part and that's probably where that number came from uh, but uh, in today's world of course everybody's got scripture whereas in those days they didn't and so you had to kind of do it out of necessity they didn't have their their gospel library app on them Oh, and, you know, nobody sitting in the congregation saying, hey, I, I don't have a signal. Do you have a signal? <laughs> so uh, at any rate, that's that's why probably the uh, the wording is singular and plural in the manner as I've uh, just explained it. And John, of course, fully expected the prophecy to be read in the seven churches by the servants, those who were the leaders of the church, because that was their duty. They were essentially the, the watchmen who get blessed for their f fulfillment of their duties to read and serve the people. And by the same token, if they fail to do that, then the sins of the people who remained oblivious to the doctrines and teachings in the book of Revelation, or for any other scripture for that matter, uh, they fall back on the watchman for uh, failing to uh, fulfill his duty to warn the people. And this is a concept that we find expressed very well in the Book of Mormon, in the Book of Jacob, verse one, or Jacob one, verse nineteen, it says, quote, "And we did magnify our office unto the Lord, taking upon us the responsibility, answering the sins of the people upon our own heads, if we did not teach them the word of God with all diligence. Wherefore, by laboring with our might, their blood might not come upon our garments. Otherwise." Their blood would come upon our garments, and we would not be found spotless at the last day. And so that's essentially what is going on here with John, giving the words of the prophecy and the revelation to the servants of the church and giving them the duty then to read it to those who are uh, willing to um, hear what uh, is being spoken by those that uh, set forth the word. Now, Today, we, we live in a state and a time of blessedness because uh, the, the word comes, the blessing is promised to those that hear the words of this prophecy. And why are we lucky today? Well, I'm reading the words of the prophecy and you're hearing the podcast, that's a podcast with a silent G, <laughs> You're hearing it. And so guess what? Congratulations. It's your lucky day. You get a blessing because you're hearing and, and giving attention to the prophecy. And, and so hopefully you're also taking heed to what John has to say. And uh, Hiram Smith, who was an apostle in the uh, 
early history of the church, actually in the early 1900s, he had this to say, quote, these revelations, in other words, those that are quoted in Revelation 1-3, should be read and studied diligently. They show us the road to life eternal. They tell us of the pitfalls on the way and how to avoid them. They furnish us with light in the darkness, strengthen temptations and trials, comfort when we mourn, and hope in times of despair. They proclaim the advent of the Son of God and point to the signs by which we may know that the establishment of his kingdom is near at hand. And so taking that, you have to understand, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm taking away your blessing that I just... I just gave you a minute ago because you don't get the blessing just for hearing. I'm sorry. You have to read, you have to hear, and you also have to keep those sayings which are written therein. So, uh, you know, sorry, I revoke the blessing unless you also are keeping the things which are written in what I'm talking about here in the book of Revelation. And what, what it means to keep is kind of an interesting concept too. You, you, you immediately kind of comes to mind, well, I have to be obedient. And that's true. Uh, but you have to preserve these words. You have to treasure them in their heart, in your heart. Um, it has to be the spirit and the rule of your life. And so uh, th these are some of the concepts associated with the reading, hearing, and keeping. To hear means, of course, you also have to hearken. So when we say you have to hear it, it's not like it, it goes in one ear and out the other. And that, let's call it a, a day. You know, you think of this concept of uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where it says, quote, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him, close quote. So you have the Savior knocking at our door, the door of our life, um, and we have to hear the knock. And he's, he's knocking pretty loud, you know. It's, it's not a subtle knock, uh, you know. I don't know that he's necessarily banging down the door, but uh, you, have to, you have the ability to hear it. It's loud enough for us to hear him knocking and to hear his voice but it's incumbent upon us to open the door and then he will come in unto us and we're all familiar with these paintings of the savior standing at the door and knocking at the door and if you look carefully in all of these these pictures that depict this there's no doorknob on the outside right and and the reason is is because he has he's knocking and the door has to be opened from the inside. Now, let me just throw up an image of a door. <laughs> this is not the Savior knocking at the door. As you can see, he's not in the picture. But my wife, Jan, who's Mammy and Grammy, she loves cool doors. She loves cool gates. And so this is really for her. I only threw it in here uh, because I knew she'd like it. <laughs> <laughs> but it illustrates the point. I can't, it's hard to, you look at this really ornate door. I can't see where the doorknob is. And so I, that's why I threw it in here also, because there's no doorknob. That's the point. Uh, the, the idea is we have to listen from inside, hearken, go to the door, and open it from the inside. Now, something else that's added in uh, the Joseph Smith translation of Revelation 3 is somewhat noteworthy, and so I want to read that verse to you now as well. It says, quote, Blessed are they who read, and they who hear and understand the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written herein. Close quote. Now, did you notice 
Joseph Smith added another requirement. And it's an requirement that even without it being added, it makes perfect sense. It's logical. And so let me read it, and then I'll point it out to you as I, as I read it again. It says, Blessed are they who read, and they who hear, and understand. That's the word that gets added in the Joseph Smith translation that is not in the King James Version. And you say, understand, oh yeah, I get it. How can you be obedient even after you read something, after you hear something, if you don't understand it, it's a little bit different to be compliant with whatever it is you're reading and hearing about, right? So you have to also understand it. And so uh, even though this admonition is given to understand uh, the words of the prophecy in the book of Revelation, the reality of it is the book of Revelation is commonly left unread and unheard mostly because people don't understand it and they regard it as this unsolvable riddle and we got all kinds of opinions about what various things mean and some of it have reduced it down to calling it just it's nothing more than Babylonian babble all right it's how some view it today and yet here we have this admonition that uh, we have to have this understanding and it's a spiritual understanding that comes through the power of the spirit and it's like a, a parable where jesus would say he who hath ears to hear let him hear so if you have the spirit with you and you open your ears uh, you have the ability to hear and understand. And King Benjamin described it this way in Mosiah 2.9. He says, Open your ears that ye may hear and your hearts that ye may understand. Now, Bruce R. McConkie had this to say. He said, Let us remember that the book of Revelation was written to be understood. True, there are many things in it which we cannot now comprehend, but its true and full meaning will someday be revealed to the faithful and obedient saints, close quote. I personally believe that day has come when the book of Revelation uh, can be understood uh, and can be comprehended to its full extent and meaning. Now, John Richard Draper had this to say, quote, Joseph Smith's modifications point to conditions in which many would be able to read and hear the words of the prophecy. He seems to have the present in mind upon anyone who receives it, regardless of the time frame, rests the responsibility not only to read, but also to understand and to do. One must pay the price to realize the blessing." Close quote. Again, that's Richard Draper in his uh, book called The uh, Opening the Seventh Seal at page uh, 27. So because of the, the time in which we exist, I believe there is an urgency for people to read to hear, to understand, and keep the words of the prophecy. And why is that? Because we're specifically told in verse 3 that the time is at hand. And so when we talk a little bit about this concept of the time being at hand, consider also the statement in Revelation 22.10, which these are again some of the last words of the prologue in the book of Revelation where it says that essentially the uh, things should shortly come to pass. And so uh, this is what we have to keep in mind. Now, when we're talking about the time being at hand, 
the 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 Greek word kairos is used to describe this time and this refers specifically to the time of the end you have to distinguish this and contrast this with the Greek word chronos which is the ordinary use of time so they have two different words for time chronos just ordinary run-of-the-mill day-to-day but kairos refers to the time of the end and that's the word being used here when it says the time is at hand means the time of the end and so it, it presses or it expresses the idea that time is limited time is pressing upon us time has matured it's finding its fulfillment and that's all of these descriptions that apply to the time when it says the time is at hand that's what we're talking about here and this is consistent with what Moroni saw in Ether 4, verse 16, when he was describing the book of Revelation coming forth in the last days, and he says this, quote, And then shall my revelations, which I have caused to be written by my servant John, be unfolded in the eyes of all the people. Remember, when ye see these things, ye shall know that the time is at hand, that they shall be made manifest in very deed, close quote. That description by Moroni where he's describing the book of Revelation coming forth in our day and he refers to it as the time is at hand is the same time is at hand that is found in the book of Revelation itself here in Revelation chapter uh, 1 verse 3. And so the other thing that I want to point out is that this is the same saying as I mentioned a moment ago in Revelation 22:10, which says, quote, And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Close quote. So John is told specifically the prophecies in the book of Revelation are not to be a sealed book. Sealed physically, sealed spiritually, sealed in terms of our ability to understand it. The book of Revelation, I emphasize, is not a sealed book. Why? Because the time is at hand for us to understand them. That's what we're told in the Joseph Smith translation, and that's what John expresses elsewhere in the book of Revelation. So now, let me read three verses back to back where this concept comes into play. In Revelation 22:7, it says, quote, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Close quote. In Revelation 22:12, quote, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. Close quote. Then Revelation 22:20, 20, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Close quote. All three of these statements about Christ coming quickly in Revelation chapter 22 are tied together with this concept that as that day quickly approaches, you have to keep the sayings in the prophecies in the book of Revelation. You've got to have your works in accordance with the teachings that are found here in the book of Revelation. Now, Wilford Woodruff had this to say. He said, quote, this is the work of the Latter-day Saints. We have been called to warn this generation. We understand the signs of the time and know that the judgments of God are at hand. Close quote. And I feel that very strongly as well, not only because 
of the things that we see going on around us, but because of these uh, emphatic words that John repeats and then re-repeats in these various verses as he describes the concept that the time is at hand. Now let me read to you again the Joseph Smith translation 1-3 uh, because I want to focus on another part about it. It says, quote, Blessed are they who read and they who hear and understand the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time of the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Close quote. Now you remember in the King James Version it just says for the time is at hand. This verse as modified by the prophet says for the time of the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. This is obviously and clearly a reference to the Lord's second coming. You know what, what I find interesting about this is that it's almost as if John wrote his version back in 96 AD saying for the time is at hand. And now that we're in the, the latter days and the book of Revelation is coming forth again, sometimes for the first time, but repeatedly is coming forth, Joseph Smith makes this modification almost for our benefit. So the time is at hand being shortly come to pass. Oh, by the way, what that really means is the time of the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Those are words for us in our time. The time is getting short when judgments are going to fall and they will be swift and they will come without delay. Now, I know that there are some people that are a little bit anxious about this, the quickness of the coming and exactly some of the really bad stuff that's going to happen before the second coming of Jesus Christ. I have my good friend John who faithfully listens to the podcast and he, uh, he uh, texted me after uh, listening to my podcast describing the first woe and he said, well, this sounds really bad. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to be around. And uh, my response was kind of, yeah, you know, there's really no easy way to kind of sugarcoat some of these things. Uh, because there are some things that are going to be difficult and trials and tribulations and uh, wickedness and evil that's going to abound on the earth. I mean, I'm, these things are going to happen in the future, but to a certain extent, the anxiousness that we feel about what lies ahead in the future is our lack of understanding of what is coming. Paul kind of described this when he said, you know, we, we look through a glass darkly. We really can't see that well out ahead of us, but the reality of it is, when you read the prophecies and the clarity of the prophecies of John in the book of Revelation, that glass darkly stuff kind of starts to fade into the past. And, and I, I tend to see it uh, pretty clearly, at least after 14 years of study, I like to think that I see clearly uh, what lies ahead. And this brings to me this, this calming reassurance, uh, despite the, the difficulties that are obviously going to exist. I, I kind of go into the future with a, uh, a certain element of calmness about me. And it reminds me of the uh, 135th section of the Doctrine and Covenants in verse 4, which describes Joseph Smith going to uh, Carthage jail. And it says, quote, When Joseph went to Carthage to deliver himself up to the pretended requirements of the law, two or three days previous to his assassination, he said, I am going like a lamb to the slaughter, but I am calm as a summer's morning, close quote. And 
where we find ourselves today is we're galloping toward the judgments of God upon the world. They're, they're at hand. The time is at hand. Um, and the thing that I can say is Joseph did while he was en route to his own assassination. I, I feel like I'm calm as a summer's morning. And uh, I think everyone can if they take the time to, to read, to hear, to hearken, and to understand, and to ultimately keep the sayings of the prophecy of this book, then we all can be calm as a summer's morning. I, I reminded, <laughs> this is another movie, movie quote, and then I'll quit, I promise. Uh, from the hunt, the hunt for Red October, and if you've seen the movie, I, it's one of my favorites, frankly, it's a classic. But at any rate, you have Captain Ramius, uh, who's the captain of this submarine that's on its maiden voyage, and it's called the Red October. Now, this is a nuclear submarine with a magnetic hydrodynamic propulsion system, <laughs> which is a fancy way, a way of saying that it runs virtually silent when the uh, magneto-hydrodynamic propulsion system is engaged, and, and it can't be detected by some of the most sensitive underwater sonar, all right? And so Captain Ramius, who sees the, the danger of uh, the Russians having a submarine with this capability and decides we can't we can't let the Russians have this boat so I'm gonna defect with the boat and so uh, he's heading out on its maiden voyage with his crew and uh, as he's leaving port he sends a letter to Admiral Fedorin announcing his intention to defect and to take the boat with him and uh, Captain Ramius lets his crew know that uh, he sent this uh, dispatch to Admiral Fedorin. And the men are all upset. You've written our death warrants. The whole Russian fleet will be after us. And even the first officer, Vasily, is a little bit, because yeah, the Russians, are gonna, they're going to send the whole Navy, the whole fleet are going to be coming after them. And Captain Ramius, who's cool as a cucumber, says, our problem is not the Russian Navy. I know their tactics. And that, the point of this story is that as I have studied the book of Revelation, I have come to know Satan's tactics. I know what's that. I'm not afraid of the Russian Navy because I know their tactics, okay? And so we can all be calm as a summer's morning. And so, uh, you know, some of you may not feel like you're going to get there. You might not feel you can be as cool as a cucumber as we continue our studies of the, uh, the book of Revelation, but I feel comfortable that we can get there. It's going to take us three and a half years, as I mentioned at the outset of this podcast, but stay with me. Uh, invite a friend to uh, study along with us. I hope that you find that it's uh, beneficial and helpful to you. We're going to study every verse like this, forwards, backwards, upside down, uh, inside and out, and uh, eventually we can get to the point of being calm as a summer's day and cool as cucumbers. And so uh, by way of conclusions, I want to thank Jenna Daly for all of the uh, technical help. And remember, I'm going to be doing two podcasts a week so we can get done in three and a half years. So I will see and I will hear you again uh, tomorrow. And uh, I look forward to it. Have a great day.